Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Laís de Oliveira, author of Hacking Communities. Laís, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Okay, Laís. So you've just released this book, Hacking Communities. Uh, Before we get into it, talk about why. What's now for this book? Okay. So there's a big why to this. So first of all, we are in one of the most connected times of our world. We have a mobile in our pockets. We are mobile. We can travel anywhere. We can choose where to belong. And at the same time, loneliness is an epidemic in our era. So I didn't come to think about all of those things when I first started building communities. But as I started writing the book, I figured that that thing I had been doing of just bringing people together and making them feel at home had a deeper meaning. And now we are facing times where the whole world has experienced loneliness to a higher degree. And I think it's even more fundamental to build communities. It's, it is a social responsibility. And the other thing is that we all have that source code. We all know how good it feels to belong authentically instead of like just fitting in and trying to belong somewhere by force. And I would love to see more spaces like those coming up where People feel at home, like they can express their most authentic selves and not try to pretend to be something so that they feel safe. It links to the fact that loneliness has concrete negative effects to our health. It increases our cortisol levels. And on the flip side, belonging increases our oxytocin levels. And that's because our bodies are wired to belong. Because back in time, when we were like naked, clawless creatures dwelling in caves, we would not have survived by ourselves. So belonging is an imperative, biological imperative, as Susan Pinker puts it. She researched a lot on this topic, followed, uh, following the research by John Cacioppo, which researched the effect of loneliness in our body. So in a nutshell, belonging still matters, but the way we connect has changed. So we need to reinvent belonging, thus hacking communities. And how do we explain this this phenomenon, Lace, where we're more connected than ever and we can, you know, uh, Tra- travel easier than ever, and yet you're more lonely than ever. This seems like a paradox. How, how do we explain this? I agree. And I, I mean, there's a lot of research going on about this right now. And I can give you, th- th- there are several aspects to this, right? So let's talk first about what happened, <laughs> because the world has changed super fast in the past, like 100 years, then 50 years, then 20 years, and then only in the last year, it went crazy, right? It exploded in transformation. But we went from living in villages where we would have that high degree of social integration to move into big cities. So that happened first. And capitalism, as we know it, is a model based on individualism and on you not being enough so that you buy, so that you consume. I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm just saying that this happened. And individualism had great advantages. For instance, if before I had a a social cohesion and I felt safe in my village, on the flip side, if I was a little bit weird or if I wanted to dye my hair pink or be an artist or maybe have a different sexual orientation, maybe I would not have been that free. So individualism gave us the benefit of self-expression. We are freer to be who we really are. So that's great. 
connection gave us the same thing. Now, I always give this stupid example, but if you're uh, the Lord of the Rings fan back in your small town, you don't need to go to the big city to attend like a Comic-Con or a cosplay event. You can find friends online and connect with them. So tech gave us that freedom to belong anywhere. On the flip side, most of the social networks we know today were created within that capitalist framework where we need to consume, right? And they make money through ads and they grew massive. So while Facebook, for example, started from Harvard and they started from small communities, they grew into something that needs to keep you paying attention to it. And this is about all social networks. And the model in which we interact online right now has grown from community-based to also ads-based. So I show you what you love, what you like. So it's more like I'm not creating serendipity online. I'm reinforcing beliefs and I'm polarizing people who think alike. So I'm creating bubbles, which are hard to, harder to break, I would say, than the physical bubbles that existed before. So I think that caused people to be A, more polarized and B, less brave to be vulnerable. So we are somehow in a contradicting way back to that village effect where I have to look like something to belong. And I think though technology can have a very positive effect. And my understanding of why it has separated us, it's because it created that, it followed that monetization model in which I need to make people believe they're not enough does I create shame? I create fear. I create separation. I create polarization. And that these are feelings of separation. These are not feelings of integration. Brené Brown puts it really well in her books, in all her books, that there are feelings that separate and feelings that connect. Fear, shame are traditionally fears that separate. And this is what some technology, some social networks are driven by. Do you agree with that? I don't know if that's a right point of view. What do you think, actually? That social networks are driven by fear and shame? Yeah. I think that is a, I think that is an element of, of what they are driven by. I, I, I think social media is a amplification of who we are of ways that we already interact. Or I'm less sympathetic to the idea that it fundamentally changes, you know, who we are, and that um, if some other company was running them, it would be totally different or, or something. I, I, think, I think it brings up the best in us and the worst in us. It just amplifies what we already were or had inside us. I agree. I ultimately agree with you. And that reminds me somehow of the, I forgot her name, Sarah, the founder of Spanx says that when you become, yeah, when you become a millionaire, you just emphasize more who you already are. She says that about becoming like a millionaire or billionaire. And that coincides with what you're saying about social media. There are great things about it, like finding people who you can share a life with, like following the hashtag van lifers community and get inspired about how you could live your life and expanding borders. But yes, it can be, bring the best and the worst of us. Yeah, I had a line about like internet helped sort of uh, kill certain communities in terms of you know proxy, people who are next to us. Like because we spend so much more time on the internet, we have le- we're less dependent on people in our local uh, you know proximal environment. But it also helps us rebuild communities, and that it helps us find you know the Lord of the Rings fan or the Van Life, <laughs> um, and yeah. then you know move there, connect with them, you know, move there digitally. Uh, and just, and I think right now we're in sort of the rebuilding uh, phase where we're thinking about what it looks like to have digital communities and experimenting with formats. Um, you know, if, if we were having this conversation around online communities 15 years ago, it would be a very different conversation. If we're having this conversation 10 years from now, wh- what do you expect? What, what could you envision is the, is the future of, of, of community? So I think that, that communities will 
always exist and they would just adapt. The, the why we get together hasn't changed. It feels good and we need to belong. And I strongly believe in the power of oxytocin, even though I'm still looking for a research, by the way, if you have it, let me know, uh, about if we can release oxytocin on an online basis, like eye to eye, because eye to eye contact itself releases it, right? And it's a, horm- it's a feel good hormone known as the cuddle hormone, et cetera. So in a nutshell, we need belonging. And I think it will always exist. Right now, what we are seeing on this accelerated digital transformation caused by the pandemic is we're trying to emulate offline online. So that reminds me of the first version of eBooks, of like our magazines. If you remember in the first tablets, a magazine, digital magazine would just be like a page that you flip. It would literally flip. You'd see like the animation. And why did we need that? So I think the first version of something that is majorly offline that it's turned into online, now that we only have that option, looks pretty much like the thing we know as of now. So I I suppose that communities in the future, the digital thing will improve to build better intimacy online. We'll have better platforms, yet unthinkable, unknown of, and better technologies around audio, around video, around physical presence. And I don't know about touch, but we'll have better experiences to build intimacy because honestly zoom has a lot to catch up with regarding building intimacy so i'm expecting a boom of tools and tech and especially audio that helps us feel closer and create that intimacy like when you dim the lights on a dinner party or when you stand up for a toast i think those elements are missing and we are going to find the answer by exploring it in the online world like today ebooks have better features than paper books somehow. You can click on a link, you can click on a word and see its meaning. So maybe we'll evolve in tech to create even better tools to belong anywhere really. So you can have friends all over the world. And I have just one more word to add here. I'm very maybe Pollyanna kinda-ish in this moment, but I believe that we'll have better communities in terms of diversity. I would love to believe in that. So when I'm no longer bound by geography or by ethnicity or by background, maybe I will be able to build communities of people who share more than their looks and their backgrounds and their religion. And I think that's going to be amazing. And it's a great opportunity and it's my most positive outlook for tech and community building. Yeah. That's awesome. Let's get into the, into the book, but before we do, I'd like to hear from you what you think your superpower is as it relates to, to community and when you realized that, that, you, that you had it, that this is what you were going to spend time with. Because a lot of people ask, hey, am I, do I have the right skills or the right you know, talents to be a community builder? Is it something that can be learned versus you know, it, how natural is it? There's a few questions in there, but why don't you uh, take a Fine. stab at them? To start from the end, absolutely everyone who's born a human knows to belong. <laughs> And I think that I only wrote a book called Hacking Communities because I was not great at it. If I was great at hacking communities, I just told you that I was like that I was a kind of the Lord of the Rings fan. I was a kind of kid at school who did not have many friends. So I think that because I was struggling to belong, I started building communities. And on the flip side, I was born from a very large family. So I was used to having those large dinners and that sense of home and family and togetherness from a very early age. And then I Flew away from Brazil at the age 20, and I was by myself. So I had to rebuild that feeling and learn how to make friends authentically and build communities. So I think that was the root of it. And 
in a way, we all experience belonging or disconnect from an early age, and we all crave to belong. So we all have potentially the source code of a community builder inside all of us. And But it was in 2014, I had moved to Malaysia, and I started organizing Startup Grind in Kuala Lumpur, which was just another event. I had started it in Buenos Aires back in 2012, and it was just another event, right? So I got in Buenos Aires, in Kuala Lumpur, and as I started organizing Startup Grind KL, suddenly like government officials from Malaysia were asking me out for lunch and let's talk about ecosystem development because you are a community builder. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds important. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. And I was having lunch with them. And they were saying community building. And I'm like, yeah. And I was just, I knew the content of what you're talking about, but that community building concept was new to me. And then I came to find that that thing I had been doing since 2007, when leading an NGO back in Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, was community building because I was managing 2,000 volunteers across three countries who thought different Chileans and Argentinians don't think alike at all. And I had to bring them together, tell them a story, and get them to agree and get them to work for no money, just based on a story, based on motivation, which is how Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens, says that we are the only animals who use language not just to describe reality, but to create fictional realities. And as long as everybody believes in the same story, we follow the same values and rules. So that's what we did at the NGO. So to finalize with my superpower, I think I have a brain who is just who thinks everything in the world is connected. And sometimes that causes me a lot of problems. For instance, when I have to be focused, <laughs> I think, well, but this relates to that. And I have this brain who's like, I thrive at a messy, chaotic context where there is multiple moving parts, like an event. And I talk to you and I said, you should meet that person. So my brain makes weird connections straight away. And I think everyone, everything like physics, quantum physics and anthropology, psychology, pedagogy, they, and all this like philosophy, I think a lot of things are related. And that relatedness in the world helps me connect dots that maybe others would not connect. And also I'm a storyteller. I wrote poetry when I was like a kid and I stopped doing that. But I love storytelling and I think fairy tales are one of the best assets we have for education in the world. So I'm a storyteller and I think I'm, um, I have a weirdly wired brain, which I think many people do as well. So you look like that kind of person too. Yeah, no, no, I, <laughs> I, I resonate with that. What do you think is the key to great storytelling or for people who are trying to teach or to learn storytelling? What, what, what comes to mind there? First word is, I, when you just asked this, I thought of, my, I thought of the word like relating. You need to relate. People need to relate to you. And that leads to vulnerability, which leads to authenticity, which leads to like safe space. So when you think about a good story being told, there's always like a circular kind of space, that safe space where people are just feeling safe, first of all, including the storyteller. Like no lion is going to hop in here and harm us right now. There's a fire. There's a sort of coziness to the environment. So there's a safe space where you can vulnerably sh tell your story and others will relate to that. So I think the, the other word that comes in here is like, when you're telling a story, you're speaking usually, right? You're, you're using your voice. So resonance is a beautiful word because something that resonates is like we vibrate in the same frequency. And that's so real with humans. Just some people are so easy to talk to and you can relate to them. And you seem like you're just vibrating the same frequency. And that's almost literal. Um, I think it's about that. It's about like, first of all, to tell a good story, I think you need to be very true about that story. 
that needs to be very at your core and you need to be very authentic about it so that people can relate at a level that that, that even they can't explain. What do we know about why vulnerability is so bonding? That brings people together. Well, I'm a big Brenner Brown fan, so I'm afraid that I would just advise anyone who has that question to read all her books. Um, what, what, what's her TLDR explanation? Well, what she says, I'll give my own personal, but what she says that I just buy in 100% is that you, that vulnerability is the gateway for feelings like joy. And it's also the gateway for feelings like shame. But only through vulnerability, you can experience joy, love, and wholeheartedness. And by Daring Greatly, which is the name of one of her books, and Breaking the Wilderness, I'm just naming all her titles right now, only by that you can really like be authentic and sound real. And I like the within that, I like a lot to the metaphor of community as home. Home is a place where you take your shoes off. And you are just yourself. You speak out loud, you laugh out loud, you don't care about what others what others think. And historically, in literature, home has been that idealistic place. From Dorothy to Bilbo Baggins, it's like that idealistic place where that we search for, the place where we belong. So I think we're all searching for that place where we can take our shoes off. And that's vulnerability. And that's when you don't need to force anything. And that's when you can flourish creatively. And that's when you can be at your best version. I think most of us spend a whole lifetime fitting in, which is in Brené, words, Brené Brown's words, the, the opposite of true belonging. Because belonging still matters. Feeling safe around people still matters. So some of us just try to be in the cool kids clubs, which is basically about American high schools, right? And every movie about American high schools has that topic. <laughs> Yes. So I think most of us learn to fit in and not truly belong. Many of us maybe never, I, no, I hope, that, I hope I'm wrong about that, but I think many people spend a whole lifetime working for careers that are not really like them because they're supposed to. That's one example of fitting in yeah. versus the true belonging, which is taking your shoes off and doing whatever you feel like. And it takes a lot of work because to be vulnerable, you first have to brave, to be brave, to dare to find who you are. Yeah. That's a journey. So vulnerability is sort of the test to see whether this community or a group of people is where you could take your shoes off when, when it really matters. It is and is also the variable for intimacy. If you think of like communication systems, when something huge happens in your life, you tell for likely your first, your closest friends before you publish that on social media. And likely in the same way, if something huge happens, like if you're, hi if you're hiring or firing someone in your team, you likely will talk to your co-founders first and then to your manager's team. And then maybe you communicate it to the whole team. Of course, you told that person before, right? We, we, we guess. So intimacy, the, what we communicate to people in which level defines how close we are to them, how intimate we are to them and how vulnerable we are. So I think vulnerability also defines communication. The more intimately we communicate to someone, the more vulnerable. So when you decide to be vulnerable, to share your story with someone, it's very likely that they gained, they earned the right to hear your story. Brené Brown also says that, so I need to quote her. So people earn the right to hear your story and to have you being vulnerable with them. But when, if you share something vulnerably with me, you will feel that. Like, I'm, I'm going to feel that. So it's going to be like a big deal for me. I likely will be vulnerable with you as well because it communicates you trust me. 
a lot. So you don't do that to everyone. So I think vulnerability also communicates how close closeness in a nutshell. Yeah. Let's get into the book. What do you hope are the big contributions that your book will make to just the broader community literature? Or what do you hope are the things that people will take from your book, the frameworks, the concept? What do you think are, are some of the biggest ones? Some of the biggest ones are, first of all, I hope that people reading the book will figure that they could have written it themselves because they they have that knowledge inside. So I hope it awakens the inner community builder inside every one who reads it. And it's going to do that by sharing frameworks which are organized in a way which is different, yet cohesive, which is like, oh, I agree with that. I, I know to do that. I know how to do that. But now that I read it, it's clearer on how to do it. For example, we all know that we are close friends with people from school or work. Why is that? We all know that we spend a lot of time with these people. Most of the times we're friends with people from school and work, right? Sometimes there are exceptions. And the fact is interactions are the key avenue for community building. They are the how-to. And we all know that. But then I create a framework with a terminology that some people already use called engineering serendipity or serendipity engineering, however you want to phrase it. And basically, it describes collision theory for people, as in the more collisions you have, the more likely you have successful connections. But not every collision will lead to successful connections. So your role as a community builder is to create enough interactions on a consistent basis and think about frequency, density, and catalyzers, which is just like what we think about in chemistry. Frequency is the variable of time, recurring encounters, cadence. Density is the variable of space, of it could be a virtual or physical space, but coziness, make it feel like home. Don't host a 15 people dinner party in a stadium in a nutshell. And catalyzers are about the conversation starters, the water cooler, the connectors, the people who accelerate connections. So if you think about this framework, it already gives you hints of how can you accelerate interactions or successful collisions within your community. And then that is also, I complement that with one of my favorite frameworks, which is the one of building relationships. I see community building as building collective relationships versus marketing traditionally, which is more like transactions and one-sided conversations. Communities are about hosting conversations and building collective relationships through what I call meals. So I just created an an acronym for meal, which is about whatever you do to bring people together. That's a meal. And the reason why I call it a meal, it's because a friend of mine says that community buildings like the turkey in the Thanksgiving dinner, where people get together to eat the turkey, but what, what really matters are the conversations around the table. So I believe food has always been a key element to bring people together. So instead of saying host events, host parties, create content, I call it meal because there are myriad of things you could do to bring people together. And the essence of hacking communities is like, you need to engineer to design interactions and engineer serendipity through that and through a variety of meals, which are consistent, cohesive, and have cadence over time. And that aligns to your core. Uh, Another thing that I think is, uh, I hope to spark discussions from my book. I don't think I'm right because community building is a journey and it's a lifelong journey. But I, I have dared to create the core values of communities because part of the differentiator of this book is that my home ground are startup communities. And there's a great deal of things that the world should learn. And I, I, I strongly believe should learn from startup communities. Because if you look at what Enrique Saxinian wrote 
in the regional advantage about why did Silicon Valley stay ahead of the Boston community in terms of startups and acceleration of growth, it relates to that culture of openness and sharing. And in a very fast-changing world, those who do not share learning, those who do not give first, likely will learn slower at a slower pace. So today, sharing knowledge, openness, trusting, giving first is not an option. But to believe that the rising tide lifts all boats takes trust and safe spaces to be built. So in a nutshell, I think the framework of core values of communities that I created is very much based in startup communities and in other communities as well, like the pole dancing community, the surfers community also inspired me and other communities, but mostly my home ground is startups. So taking the essence of startup communities and trying to implement that to other communities around the world and those core values being abundance, uh, humility, which is abundance is what I've mentioned of giving for sharing information, trusting the community to give back to you eventually. Humility is about knowing that glad, being glad to be part of, knowing that you are not that important or better put, you are special. You're very special, but everyone else is. And uh, so I let go. And the third being uh, authenticity, which is the what, what Derek Anderson from Startup Grind put as make friends, not contacts. And that's the only thing that builds relationships through vulnerability and et cetera. So these are the core values. And I think I would love to see people's opinions about that. How do you think about the tension between building communities' sake for uh, you know, building communities for community's sake versus building communities versus uh, for for business in, in the context of business? What, what are, and then of course there's this idea of like even within the business is community. It's you know there's a difference between building community that is itself the product versus community that is a wedge your marketing tool for 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 some other product or business. What comes to mind there? Well, first that some people call their user base a community. So. To start with, I think that you can build great business communities, like outstanding business communities. And one of the examples I have, at least in Southeast Asia, was like AWS building CTOs communities in Southeast Asia actually did a great job. And they were totally trying to sell their thing. But to do so, they would connect CTOs and developers from all levels at local level to each other, bring the local champions to share knowledge, and grow from there. So I'm giving you AWS example. I'm not a user, by the way, currently. I eventually will be back on it. <laughs> so the thing is that they have done a great job in understanding that it was not about them speaking in one direction and telling you what their brand is about. It was about creating space for their community to talk and help each other. And underlying it, underneath it all, it was the idea and the understanding that those people who were sharing were AWS customers. So I'm just giving this example to say, I believe that business communities can do a great deal of positive things to the world by building communities amongst users and creating belonging. The difference is that many people don't, They again, they talk about community management as someone on your social media deleting comments, right? That's not, in my point of view, community management. Community building implies relationships, whereas traditional marketing transactions. It implies conversations, hosting conversations, whereas traditional marketing is about ads, advertising. And community building implies people and purpose and participation, whereas traditional marketing has the other piece that I forgot because they don't matter anymore. Anyways, so in a nutshell, I believe that business communities as well as like communities around the cause or idea or physical place. Like you could build a community for a new real estate development 
a new city development, a co-housing complex. You could build, let's place making. It could build a community around a product or service. And it could be the community around a cause like activism. And I don't believe there's a difference. In fact, as a consumer, I want to get more than a product and I want to get more than a service. And if you can give me that, I'll be a loyal customer. So, and in a way, I'm a customer of OnDeck, for example, but I don't think of myself that way. I never, actually, I'm just thinking about it right now. I always thought myself a member. So this is an example of like, I believe that there is no reason to say building communities for business is wrong. In fact, I think we should implement more community building as a marketing strategy. And the core, the framework, I believe is the same, is very similar. And another, another point is that I believe in community building as a very strong organizational culture and management tool as well. Building teams as communities is a big deal. And some companies already try to do that. So I believe business communities are great and the framework is roughly the same. We're going to have a bunch of people in our community builder fellowship who are, and you talk to community builders all the time, I'm sure, who are thinking about how to make it sustainable, how to make it profitable, how to think about monetization for their community in a way that is authentic and, and you know, resonates with, with their community. Any frameworks or advice for how people should think about it? The fast answer is no, <laughs> because I think it depends on your value proposition, on what your community is around. I can give you a few examples. I have been talking about that exactly with someone who's at, on the, uh, at the Ondag Fellowship uh, from, I, I think I can say his name, he won't kill me. It's Ike Uchi from Africa Hacks. And he has built a great community to basically take the power of hackathons and enable people to run more of those in Africa. And he's currently based in Canada. So it's amazing, right? But then uh, he has a lot of people who are like sponsors and companies. And as every community, he's struggling to monetize on that. So I told him, you could go down the startup grind avenue, which is getting like Google for entrepreneurs or some big sponsor to love you and see the impact of what you're doing, like a cause, and sponsor you to be powered, to have Africa Hacks powered by me, right? The other thing is that you want to keep it very transparent with your community, but what is the core value that you're adding there? And maybe you're connecting developers to jobs. Maybe you're connecting, you're creating, you're creating a huge talent data, database. So that's your core value, maybe for an outsider's point of view. So there's there is monetization in there in a way that also serves the benefit, that benefits you. So there's different ways to monetize. And if you're building, for instance, a community around place, you don't need to monetize, you are the solution. Because most of the people commit the mistakes of building a place first, like a co-working space or a building in a house complex before knowing who's going to get in. So if you are a community builder, you are actually making money by bringing people to that physical place. And that's place making. So there are community building avenues that make money straight away. The problem, I think, is that many of us think of community only as communities around the cause, like women in tech. And of course, then we depend most of the times on sponsorship. But I think the core is like, it's to just think of, I said no, but I have one hack. The hack is to think of all the players within your community and all the types of interactions going from all the other ways. For instance, I have women in tech and I have conferences that want to have women speaking in them. And I have companies who want to hire women. Just give you an example. So maybe I can create that kind of marketplace and monetize from that. But then I need the volume. So that's why it's not that simple and straightforward. But you need to find out what's the core value that you're solving to whom. And from there, we need to talk, then we talk about how to monetize. 
I, I want to get into some of the the, the more nitty gritty. Uh, you know, when you think about how to get a community off the ground, how to how to grow it, and then how to you know scale it or, or decentralize it. You, in the book, you you talk about the community life cycle, the different stages, and then you also have your own sort of you know extended gardening uh, metaphor. Can you yeah. uh, can you can you get into all of that? Yeah, so basically, I think that communities grow like nature. So that life cycle is about understanding the phases that your community goes through from you being alone with your core idea. So the first step is that, why do you want to build a community? <laughs> like, who are you even? And what do you want to do? Why do you want to bring people together? And then the second step is what I start, I call like budding, which is like, you should get your first buddies around. And it's also about the bud <laughs> of, a, of a plant. And it's like, I like the metaphor of like starting a community from scratch is like moving to a new city and wanting to host a, host a house party. So <laughs> I advise you get out first. <laughs> you go to bars, explore places, you meet people. And in a while you're, you're working on your home, you're building your home, you're making it beautiful. So you're working on your purpose and your mission and your, why do you want to build a community? And meanwhile, you're exploring. And then you find, okay, I want to build a community around beer because I love beer. And then you go exploring the existing communities around it. So the first thing I would do is like honor your ancestors. Find out which are the existing communities and make friends, not contacts. Just like startup growing values ask you to. Because then you start to figure out where do you fit in and how can you add value beyond what's already in there. And then you start gathering a hardcore group around you. Say by hanging out recurrently, in places around the topic. It could be beer lovers. It could be the Lord of the Rings fans. It could be founders and or women in tech. You start to get to know people who are also into that. I call them the hardcores, the people who are very hardcore about something. And then you get to your first 50, which is more like you're getting to the flower stage, my, in my metaphor. So you start showing up and showing yourself to people and people start getting attracted by you because of you have a number of people attracted to you and most likely these are the hardcores the people who already believe what you believe or share something about what you're talking about or who already get it they just get it faster and then your goal your goal is to grow that community by creating more instances of interactions again where you can attract a crowd of curious people those who are curious about it for instance in a startup community they could be board executives they could be students, people who want to hear about it, but are not yet an entrepreneur. So you start inviting your hardcore people to help you co-host events. You give them a power to be a speaker at an event. You host dinners for them. So you build that tight community first. And then from there, you start to grow and attract a wider audience of people who maybe do not share that abundance mindset yet, or maybe do not think of starting a company yet, but are curious about it. And then you start to attract more people and grow to a point where, of course, I'm being very fast in explaining this here. So I hope I'm making sense. But until you get to a point where you grow obsolete, where some people in your community evolved so much that they start hosting the events and you evolve to another role of my, or more like you are the, the old guy in the room and other people will be hosting activities, will be putting content up, will be bringing people together, will be connecting others. And then you grow in a fractal way, which is how nature grows. Like I use the dandelion example. From one core seed, you grow a flower and a seed head. And that seed head is all the people within your community who will spread your DNA and your core values across the world. So your goal is to get into that and to be able to let go when you get to that point. Because the key for communities is that you have identity, people can relate to you, 
they feel represented by you and they want to represent you. There's connectedness as in it's not a one-sided conversation. It's a conversation that goes in all directions. And there is growth, which is the final indicator that it is a community. It grows because people feel like they belong, the representation of your community themselves. And because they're all connected, it grows from people to people. They represent you and it grows organically, potentially slow at the beginning, but then exponentially. And that's when you should have very, very solid um, systems in place to help them grow. And what might those systems look like? One of the examples is like a platform. So I'll give a very concrete one, which is how Startup Grind did it. Um, You don't want to compromise ever on your values and on your brand. I advise that as a community builder, you can grow obsolete. You can let go. Yet you're still the, how can I say a word for that? The one who takes care of the core values in the brand, along with other people. If you build it well from the core, you won't need to take care of much, but you need to hold on to the core values. And the systems can include that set of core values, that kind of manifesto thing, the story that brings you all together. You are always like the one who's going to be protecting it, the guardian of this manifesto. You create systems where people can use your brand, knowing how to use it, like brand guidelines. So especially for them not to have to reinvent the wheel. You've learned something. So build a system in which if your community is event-based, you share your framework and everything with them so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. You share your knowledge with them. And if your community is tech-based, you create the platform where they can create content. So I think that systems are a lot based on the value systems, the knowledge, the spiritual ideas that bring your community together, and the infrastructure that allows them to do the things that brings people together on a recurring basis. Either it be events or content, you give them the infrastructure. It could be the platforms, the templates, the knowledge, the brand, and tech to enable them to perform your role a hundred times because it would be a hundred people doing what you used to do on their own. So there are great platforms out there. I can mention them over this call. I didn't mention them in the book because I don't know what they would look like two years from now, but there are great platforms to connect people already. And that could serve as this kind of system that you create and put in place for people to build communities on your behalf. So in essence, systems is about help them so that no one needs to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. What do you think are the biggest or some common mistakes that people make when either getting started or when growing them that, uh, you know, are failure modes or that people should watch out for? What are, what are some things you see or, or advice? Mm. I think a classic mistake is thinking of oneself too important because many people see community builders in the spotlight. And a great community builder is often loved and people see that and then they go for that thing. But that community builder is loved because they gave first, because most often they didn't care much about putting themselves in the spotlight, but they cared to serve as a platform for people to connect and create platforms for people to connect. Community builders tend to be very focused in adding value. And that's, a, that's fundamental to community building. And a lot of times I see community builders that either go for the gold pot, golden pot, which is like, I want to be an influencer. That's really not the way to go about it. First of all, you need to be purpose-driven. The second thing that I often see is that's the classic one. And it's not, it, they are all very well-intentioned, but trying to control more than they can. So I like to compare community building to baking or to surfing. 
because there's just a an amount of things that you can control and you should control everything you can, but let go of the rest. For instance, you can control what you write about your brand. You can control how you tell your story. You can control where you tell your story, to whom, but you can't control how people will feel about it. And you can't force people to do something. That's micromanagement. So you need to create spaces that like you put the leaven in and let it and put some sugar and some water and let it do your thing. Let, let the leaven do, do its thing, right? Let it breathe. And then maybe you, so it, it requires a lot of patience. So in a nutshell, I think these two things are trying to control things super fast because we live in a world where, where we have that illusion of control ends up killing communities because when the leader is gone, the community dies because they were so fundamental to it. So not letting go, trying to control everything or being too self-centered are usually things that kill communities. And that's also related to trying to go for the marshmallow too soon. You know, remember that marshmallow thing with the kids? Yeah, like marshmallow. So I think that you have to be great at delayed gratification to build communities. Like I remember listening to your story recently. You started putting dinners together in like 2016, correct? Before ONDAC became a thing. Yeah. So I think at the beginning, no one of us expects where our communities will grow. So you can't really control it. Like wanting to, con it's like having a child and wanting to make sure that they become a successful CEO. You can't do that. So there's a lot of mothering and grandmothering, I think, to community building or parenting and a lot of baking to it. Basically, it's a science where your role is to be a platform and utmost to add value to people and through that, make people feel at home. Yeah. How do people know when their community is working? When, when there's when there's demand, how, how should they evaluate sort of like, is this doing well? Does this have potential to, to grow? You know, because often people are doing communities mm -hmm. on the side and they're wondering, hey, should I really double down on this and invest in this? How, how, how do you think, like, what are metrics mm -hmm. or, or frameworks people mm -hmm. should use to evaluate community? So I, I have a, a model in the book that allows people to create their own metrics. So I think that every community has their own metrics. And that's one of the things that I basically use a model which matches a business model canvas with a balanced scorecard from that thing from the 90s and put them together so that you think about your vision, your mission, and then what are the enablers and the supporters to that. And ba based on this, you create your KPIs and your measures of success. That's going to be crazy if I try to explain this here, but there is a tool for that. Yet, talking about communities like broadly, for any community, I believe that there's a, there are three core indicators, and then there are evidences underneath which, each of them. So the first is identity. People are proud to belong. Do people say they belong to your community? Do they wear the t-shirt? Do they feel like representing you? Do they speak out loud? Unless you're a fight club, people should be happy to say that they are part of your community. And even at Fight Club, that the first and second rules were clear, people would still say they were part of Fight Club. The other uh, evidence of it is growth, which is also evident in Fight Club again. So even though they could not say they were part of it, it grows. And it's growing from exponentially. And if not, maybe you're controlling it too much. It's growing doesn't mean fast, but it means exponentially it means that it's growing at a crazy rate which by the way is happening with on deck i know that and the third one not not in that order but the third one is connectedness are you the only one speaking or are you is your community alive without you i sorry for the tragic example but if you are hit by a truck tomorrow would your community persist 
And that's an evidence of both identity and growth, but mostly of connection. So do you know that system, I forgot the name of the guy who created those systems that inspired Wi-Fi. There is one which is centralized, the other is distributed, the other is networks. Remember uh, that? I, I, know the, I don't know the person, but I know, I know the idea. So basically, uh, it was created during the, if I'm not mistaken, war, maybe the Second World War, I think the Second World War, and that was created for com to create communication systems that were more sustainable. So in the centralized one, if you throw a bomb, all the information disappears. In the distributed, it's clusters. If you throw a bomb here, this information disappears, these guys, it doesn't. But also if you develop new information here, these guys will get updated, but this one will not, that one will not. Whereas in the network system, everyone is updated. All the dots connect. The conversation doesn't go from me telling them what to think about my brand. Like Jeff Bezos says, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. And even more today, where people are online and connected and talking all the time, it's not your option. You could want to control and dominate and be a monologue and tell people what to say about your brand, but you can't. So it's about building connectedness and making sure you host conversations. And that's the role of platform. Your platform could be a group, could be a Slack group, could be a Facebook group, it could be a WhatsApp group, or it could be a platform that you build yourself, or it could be a room where everyone can connect to everyone physically. It doesn't matter, but you need to make sure every dot is able to connect with another dot at the other corner if they wanted to. It doesn't mean they will, yeah. but I think that these are the three assessments. Like, are people talking or am I the only one talking? If I die tomorrow, <laughs> will it persist? Are people proud to represent and say they are part of my community? Does my community identify them? Like I put on that in my LinkedIn just because, and other people do that as well. So we feel proud to be part of it. And the other thing is, and growth, <laughs> is it growing organically? So these are the three indicators for every community. And then you have to create your own measures of success for your own one. What does co uh, community building look like in, in COVID era? Of course, we're, we're all online, but we will have a post-COVID era. You've been in the OnDeck Fellowship, so you, you have you know, some exposure to that community looks like in COVID. Talk a little bit about w w what community building in COVID looks like. Hmm. Well, that connects a little bit with uh, the future of connection as we spoke in the beginning. I think we will develop better tools. Like you have amazing tools where now we have social networks that are audio-based. So we'll find more human ways to connect across the oceans and still feel like we are sitting and grabbing coffee together. I think people will be more familiar and less formal about online events because in the beginning it was like, let's make a Zoom call. Now it's more like, let's just grab the phone and call each other like it's 90, 99, something like that, right? <laughs> it's like, so I think that online encounters will become more natural. More research will be developed to understand the impact it has in our health. For instance, we don't know, I don't know yet, maybe someone does, and I'm still shouting it out loud in there. Maybe if you do know, tell me. If we can, if online I2I has the same impact in enhancing our levels of oxytocin as the offline I2I, but I think we'll find um, more research to see what's the impact of tech and develop better devices that hurt our eyes less or that optimize our time better in terms of online connections. And the most interesting thing I think will happen is that encounters and places will be more intentional. When I no longer need, e-commerce is the best example, right? When I no longer need to go shopping for a pair of jeans, 
just because I need another one. I can buy them online. So I will only go to places for experiences. And when I no longer need to go to the office to talk to Eric, maybe my encounters will be more intentional when we do meet. So it's going to be more memorable. It's going to be more experience-driven. Everything will be more experience-driven. And the outlook of cities might change slightly. We don't know what's going to be the effect of that in Texas. So we are, and for real estate developers who, because real estate is still one of the largest industries in the world. So maybe places like Market Street and Faria Lima in Brazil will still have their meaning. But people will go there because they want to, not because they have to. And that will change the functionality of place, in my opinion. And more co-living and more co-housing places will likely exist because we can we can optimize space, right? We can create space that does not need to have retail, for instance, unless it's an experience. There's a ton of things that can apply here, but I believe in a nutshell, encounters, physical encounters will be more intentional, places will be, will be more intentional towards experiences and online encounters will be made more natural through technology and communities will, will be more diverse I hope that depends on other aspects of our lives. That depends on algorithms as well. I, I love it. I, I want to look at um, on that as a, as a case study because it's always useful to have a you sort of you to hear it from someone uh, for, from someone who's, who's such an expert and who's studied sort of the space in a in a you know academic way in a very analytical way. What are some of the things that you think on um, deck has figured out or or or, or, or done that or that potentially other people can. Can, can learn from, and I, I don't want this to be a, a commercial, but I'm just curious for the specific, <laughs> yeah. specific tactics that you think people can learn from that. Actually, yeah. I started writing, I sort of started writing a case for on deck and genuinely because I thought it was a great case. So to be candid here, I did not expect really that level of serendipity when I joined on deck. And as everyone else, I have been quarantined and locked down in my home. I moved to a farm in Brazil. So I have like people around me and then I have two chickens and one rabbit. So I was missing serendipity. And when I joined on deck, I expected that. I was looking for that. But I have always been a little bit cautious and skeptical about this kind of networks. Either they are too much like a cool kids club or they are too much like, um, and a cool kids club is a fitting in kind of place or they're too much like, um, I don't know, a BNI kind of thing, you know, just a networking thing. But I wasn't. And then what I found is that, A, you curated relevance in a very interesting way, not only because people who came in are share relevance, and relevance means the level of commonalities that we share, how the depth of commonalities that we share. We share moments in life, and we share curiosities, and we share the fact that we did crazy things in the, in the past. And that put me in touch with people who, Almost on a 100% basis, everyone I met, if we did not have a follow-up meeting, the meeting was amazing in itself. So it was very, it felt like being at a coffee shop in that downtown area where most of the startups are and bumping to people again. So it was great. So level of serendipity was great due to relevance and that's due to curation. I think you guys have done a great job. And that came without arrogance. That came without the exclusiveness cool kids kind of feeling which is it's okay to be exclusive but it's bad to be excluding and i think that came with a ton of diversity in it a lot of women a lot of people from many different places so that was great so just just to put a parenthesis in there relevance is not defined by 
being part of the dem same demographics at all. So relevance is defined by sharing something. And we share a lot of, especially moments in life and desires and on that. The second thing was engineering the design of interactions. You have, I'll try to list everything here. You have a directory, which is a static list of everyone in that describes, that people self-describe themselves. So it's very accurate to what they're looking for, what they have done. So there's a directory, which is a static list of everyone. So you can have an overview of the community. There's a Slack, which is crazy. And everyone is there. You can get hold of anyone at any moment. You can send them a message. So you find them in a directory by searching a keyword like co-living, message them, and they will likely reply within the day. There is socials and icebreakers, which are random events. I'd never thought of myself playing games online. And suddenly <laughs> I was there like <laughs> playing games online with people. And it was fun, like trying to guess what someone else was drawing. And that was the element of play. And then there were workshops that were more like action sessions. And then there were more like action sessions. They are called that way, by the way. And there were pitch sessions and there were talks that are more like monologue driven, more teaching. So what I mean by that is that it, it might sound obvious to many people, but the diversity of formats of meetings, I listed at least eight here, the diversity of shapes and formats of interactions defines way in which we gain different value from different interactions. I can just be tired and listening to your talk I can be curious and participating actively in your work workshop. There are build weekends where, where I literally work with people, actively do stuff. There are socials where I just get to play with people. And if I wanna have deep conversations, which are my favorites, that's what I've done the most. I can find people in the directory and message them on Slack and schedule one-on-ones the whole week. So I think the way you created interactions, you, the way you engineered serendipity in a nutshell, helped people having multiple avenues to connect in different ways. And that's engineering serendipity itself. Multiple instances, which is cadence and multiple formats of connections in which I meet someone because we are sharing the same room and we like the same topic. I meet someone because I found them on the director or I'm director or I meet someone because I went to an icebreaker and played cards with them and suddenly found that we share the same ideas about the future of living. And some people just approached me as well. So I, I was also found by some people. I'm working on at least three interesting projects, not working, but helping people actively in at least three very interesting projects around co-living, the Africa hacks I've mentioned, and one with, they are building like a platform for community. And all these people came from on deck and I didn't know them 10 weeks ago. And there was this guy, I was meeting him for the first or second time. The first meeting was more like a five minute thing. And then I met him for real. And then I, uh, I caught COVID-19 <laughs> during this time and I was ill and I was feeling bad and I was feeling mad at something. I don't remember exactly what happened. Oh, I remember. One of my friends was acting like an anti-vaxxer and I was like, really? And I was very mad for having started a discussion. You know that typical polarization thing I talked about. And I was feeling mad at myself for having started a discussion with my friend. So I jumped into this chat with this guy and I was feeling like, I was just not in the mood. And I just told him, I look, this happened. And then we talked about polarization and social media and discussions and friends and how to, you know, how we are most vulnerable with the people who are, who, how we are, we get the most angry sometimes with the people we are closest with. And before jumping to the topic we were gonna discuss, I was vulnerable with him to share how I was feeling at that moment. If it was like a business discussion in any other place, Likely, I would have just followed it. I would breathe deep and be, okay, let's talk business here. 
So I think that is, an, and then I was like, this is crazy. Like I just took a car ride with a stranger by sharing this with you and not an Uber rider. I'm talking about like real stranger driver. So in a nutshell, I think that you've created enough relevance and instances of connections that make us connect with people faster than usual. Uh, th thank you for, for that. that is, yeah, it's really, um, re really fascinating. Is there anything we, we didn't get to that you're like, oh man, this would be a bad episode if we didn't, uh, w anything at the top of your mind that like, oh, need to say? It doesn't serve anything to have the framework, but not be to not, but not being at your right state of mind and heart to yeah. do that. Like, I remember when I wrote, started writing community, hacking communities, I was like, even a little bit cocky. Because I was like, yeah, I got this framework and it's great. And then I moved to San Francisco and I was lonely. And there were many factors to it. But basically, I wasn't able to connect. And I fell into this deep rabbit hole of disconnectedness, if that word exists. And what happened to me was that I never thought myself experiencing this, which is more of like a mental health issue, which is like the more lonely I felt, the more I felt like I was a... Um, a downer in a way. So the more ashamed I felt. So maybe I could have met people like you if I was walking around in San Francisco. But I didn't meet a lot of people I had the opportunity to meet because I was feeling bad about myself. And feeling bad about myself, I was reinforcing shame, fear, and disconnection. And it is really a spiral downwards. So it serves you nothing to have a framework and know exactly the step by step. If you're not truly connected to yourself and it sounds cheesy but if you're not truly loving yourself and it's not about being done at loving yourself because it's a journey but it's about feeling that you are enough feeling that you have a purpose and that you are open to be vulnerable to people and loneliness drives you into a fictional land where everyone despises you and I never thought I'd feel that way and in feeling that way that really connected me to why I'm writing this book in a deeper level it was a horrible, but worthwhile experience. And I hope to never experience that again. But basically, it drove, it drove me to believe, after being a community builder for years, that I was worthless meeting. And I wonder how many people feel like that. And if you're feeling like that, you can have the best frameworks in the world. It won't work. So take care of yourself, love yourself, be kind to yourself first. And that's, I think, a fundamental to building communities, even though it sounds fluffy. That's a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, my guest has been Laís de Oliveira of Hacking Communities. Uh, Laís, where can you point people uh, to, to find the book and, and learn more about your work? So first of all, thank you so much, Eric. Enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. And you can go to hackingcommunities.com. And uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn, Laís de Oliveira. And we can get connected in there so you can ask me questions. The book is available on Amazon uh, by the name Hacking Communities and under my name as well, you can find it. For more information, because I'm always sharing more content, I'll be sharing ideas and my own assessment, for example, of ONDAC in there and of other communities that I love. And I'll continue sharing videos and updates. For more, you can go to hackingcommunities.com. Thank you so much, Lace. This has been a great episode. Thank you so much, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.